Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. The year 2017 will mark the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Revolution. In the year 1517, a young Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church at Wittenberg, protesting certain teachings and practices of the Catholic Church and sparking a revolution within the heart of Christendom. Today, nearly 500 years later, there are over 30,000 Protestant denominations. Yet, there remains but one holy Catholic Church. Join Dr. William Marshner, a Protestant convert to Catholicism and professor of theology at Christendom College, as we consider the roles which Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli played in one of the saddest moments in the history of the Church. Please enjoy this presentation of the Protestant Revolution. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us. It's good to have Dr. Marshner back for the last talk in this series. Thank you. Thank you. Calvin's real name was either Kovan or Chauvin. Nobody knows why. He put the L back in his name to Latinize it out of the French. So Calvin is a Latinized version of his family name. He was born in 1509. Uh, he was 25 years younger than Luther. His father, Gerard Calvin, was a notary to the church chapter in the town of N-O-Y-O-N. At the age of 12, Cajetan already got a small church living, called a benefice in those days, the income from a parish, and he received tonsure. In other words, he got a church living before he was ever ordained, thanks to his father's influence. In 1523, Calvin went to school in Paris, and in that same year, alas, his father was accused of usury and fired from the parish in Noyon. In 1526, Calvin went on to the College of Montaigu, which at that time was directed by a famous critic of Erasmus. So Calvin started to get some solid formation. He read a bit of Scotus. He read a bit of Aquinas. And thanks to his father, he got another parish living to fund his studies. So far, this is 1526 now, so far he had no trouble with being a Catholic. However, late in that same year, he came under Lutheran influence from his cousin, a fellow named Pierre-Robert Olivetin. So, you know, family members always trouble. <laughs> <laughs> The Lutheran influence was not yet complete, but it was strong enough that in 1528, Calvin sought his father's permission to leave Paris, give up his theology studies, and go to study law in the town of Orléans. This he did, but there he met a Lutheran professor, a fellow named Volmer, Melchior Volmar, W-O-L-M-A-R. He also spent some time in Bourges, where he found a Lutheran center and met the very young Theodore Beza. Uh, Beza was a child at the time. 
Uh, he was, his parents were in this Lutheran center. Eventually, Theodore Beza would be a lifelong follower of Calvin and would succeed Calvin in his chair as the chief uh, preacher in uh, Geneva. Well, right now, everybody's still in France. In 1531, Calvin's father died excommunicated because of these financial quarrels with his parish. Calvin gave up his law studies and returned to Paris, but not to go into theology again, but rather to take part in the humanist movement, which was heating up in Paris in those days. He uh, went so far as to write a commentary on one of the plays of Seneca during this time. Seneca, Roman philosopher and playwright of Stoic persuasion. In 1533, and we do not know the internal details, Calvin somehow turned to the new Lutheran way of thinking. At that time, Protestants in Paris were protected by a noblewoman named Marguerite de Valois, V-A-L-O-I-S, and were also protected by the toleration policy which had been followed for some years by King Francis I. While on All Saints Day, a big sermon was to be given, Calvin wrote it. Another fellow actually delivered it, a fellow named Cobb. And towards the end of that sermon, there was a sentence that would prove to be inflammatory. Here's the sentence, quote, heretics, seducers, Imposters, accursed. This is how the world of wickedness likes to describe those who purely and sincerely try to introduce the gospel into the souls of the faithful. Well, there was an uproar in Paris, and Calvin had to flee home to Noyon. The years 1533 to 1536 are hard to follow because Calvin moved around a great deal. He traveled all over the place, and he started to make the first notes towards what would turn out to be his main book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, for short, The Institutes when he first published part of it, which was a couple of years later, it was only four books long, and then by the time it was done, it was more like 13 books long. He worked on it and fiddled with it and added to it and amended it during his whole life. So it, it is his, his master work. And he started making notes for it already in the, uh, 1533. Well, there was a riot in the town of Noyon, his hometown. Lutheran ideas had started to take root there, and there was a riot in town on Trinity Sunday. What part Calvin had in this riot, nobody knows. But we do know that he was arrested and imprisoned until June the 3rd. Well, it could only have been a couple of weeks. I don't know quite how late Trinity Sunday was that year. But he seems to have spent a couple of weeks in jail. 
As a result of that incident, later on, there grew up a rumor that Calvin had once committed a crime. So far as we can tell, there is no foundation for that rumor. He traveled down to the south of France into the town Poitiers, like Sydney, Poitiers, under a pseudonym. He took on the pen name of Charles of Espeville, Charles d'Espeville, and he collected disciples and sent out many disciples as missionaries all over France. On the night of October the 18th, 1536, placards went up in several towns all over France. Overnight placards went up denouncing the mass. Well, this incident absolutely infuriated Francis I, who decided that his toleration policy was not bearing fruit. <laughs> so he started to propose repressive measures, and Calvin went into exile. Now, if you are a French speaker and you're going to go into exile, the closest French-speaking country you're likely to go to is Switzerland. So that's what he did. In 1536 to 1538, we have Calvin's first stay in Geneva. Now, people often think that uh, Geneva had been some sort of sleepy Catholic town until Calvin got there and changed everything. It's not true. Geneva had been a free city for a long time. It resisted the encroachments of the Duke of Savoy and preserved its political independence. They've been free for a long time, and it had become largely Protestant already by 1532. That's four years before Calvin got there. In fact, a year before Calvin got there, 1535, the city council had decreed the abolition of the mass. Well, Calvin came into town in 1536 and managed to get himself appointed as preacher in what had been the Cathedral Church of St. Peter. So he gets the main church in town, the formal, former cathedral, and there he lectures regularly on the scriptures. Well, he hadn't been doing this long before he set his hand to what would become the distinguishing work of his stay in Geneva, namely the reform of public morals. On November the 10th, Calvin read out the articles on the regime of the church, particularly de regimini ecclesiae. Calvin first read them out, preached on their necessity, and persuaded the town council eventually to adopt them. Let me read you a snippet. Our Lord has put into his church the correction and discipline of excommunication, through which he has willed that those who will be of disorderly life and unworthy of being Christians and who commit crimes after having been admonished to come to amendment and bring themselves back to the right way are cast out of the body of the church like members who have been purified or cut off until they come to repentance, recognizing their fault. Luther never set up a church organization that 
took to itself the power of excommunication. Luther had the protection of German princes all of his life, and those princes would take care of law and order issues. But Calvin wanted this function to be primarily in the hands of the church, and so he held on to the long-standing practice of excommunication. And what you need to know is this. Persons were commissioned in every quarter of the town to have their eye on the lives of everybody else and to denounce those whose conduct seemed reprehensible. In other words, along with the articles, there came a spy system. Well, the city council approved these articles on January the 16th, 1537. Under these articles, not only were those who didn't have the faith of Calvin's church not legitimately members of the church, but they would have to be left outside, but also the council that approved the confession of faith in the articles commanded and required adhesion by oath. You had to swear to Calvin's version of the gospel. The city council had a secretary, and this secretary would take a seat in the cathedral of St. Peter, and there he would require the oath of each citizen. And those who refused to take the oath would be sent into exile. Needless to say, there were people who didn't find this very attractive. After all, here were two lay people, Calvin and a sidekick of his named Farrell, who had no other mission but what they had attributed to themselves, dictating to Geneva what people there ought to believe, what they ought to practice, and they were requiring of every Genovese citizen, Genovese, Genovese not Genovese, Genovese citizen, personal adhesion under penalty of banishment. As you can imagine, the number of people who refused to come forward and take the oath was considerable. Before they could get around to searching out and dragging in all the people who didn't come forward to take the oath, intervention came from the city of Bern. Now, B-E-R-N-E, the city of Bern was also a Protestant city, but it had kept somewhat more conservative liturgical usages than Calvin thought proper. Now, the Bernese had an army, and they had a long history of interfering in the civic affairs of Geneva. And the Bernese sent over an ultimatum. You must adopt our ceremonies, or else it's war. Well, the city council agreed, but Calvin did not. So in this quarrel over the Bernese ceremonies, Calvin had to leave town end of his first stay in Geneva. Three years went by, 1538 to 1541. During those three years, Calvin visited Strasbourg. He met with important Germans like Melanchthon. He did not meet Luther. He never met Luther, never laid eyes on him his whole life. He responded to an invitation to correspond that came to him from a Catholic cardinal, Cardinal Sadolet. S-A-D-O-L-E-T. This was in March of 1539. Cardinal Sadolet thought he could do some good by actually writing a letter. 
And uh, it's, it's a beautiful letter, and Calvin sent back a rather testy reply. But at least it was lengthy and took some of Satellite's ideas seriously. Uh, that correspondence has been published in English, the Calvin Satellite correspondence. It's worth looking at if you're interested. <laughs> Meanwhile, in 1540, Calvin got married. Now remember, he had had tonsure, but no further holy orders. So he was within his rights under church law to marry. There's no scandal here. He married the widow of an Anabaptist whom he had converted to his own way of thinking. This widow was named Yvette de Bure. Lovely Yvette, alas, was frail. She only lived for nine years after they were married. Uh, died in 1549. They only had one child, a son, and that son only lived a few days. So poor Calvin was largely without close human contacts. Well, in 1541, the trouble with the town of Bern seemed to have gone away, and the city council invited Calvin to come back, which he did. So he comes for his second stay in 1541. And the very first thing he did was insist on the reinstitution of those articles for the regime of the church. In addition to getting those articles put in place again by the city council, he also created a new institution called the consistory. The consistory was composed of six pastors and 12 elders. It was the guardian of the town ordinances, and it was the tribunal before which everybody's moral conduct could be examined. Six pastors and 12 elders formed the tribunal, Calvin himself, of course, being the main member. The consistory met once a week. It mandated punishments for public sinners, as far as hidden faults were concerned, it instructed its spies to first try to admonish those whom they suspected of hidden faults. And if they didn't respond with repentance, then they would be denounced to the consistory. Spies were set up, well, they were called guardians. Guardians were set up for the city, city guardians and also country guardians. They were obliged to take note of any sin committed against God or against one's neighbor. And they were obliged to denounce this to the authorities. Let me just stop there. Let me just stop there. We are used to having civil laws that punish certain crimes, right? Seems to me I'm correct to say that all of the crimes that we're used to seeing punished by the town authorities come under the second table of the law of Moses, right? Sins against the neighbor. Theft, murder, false witness. If people don't keep their Sunday obligation, I don't know of any town in which the police arrest them, do you? But Calvin insisted that the town government, led by the consistory, would also prosecute offenses against the first table of the law. So if you didn't worship God correctly, you would be subject to denunciation and possibly banished. Penalties were pronounced by the consistory. They ran from a reprimand to fines, 
The fines were useful because the money could be used to pay the members of the consistory. Mm -hmm. Reprimands, fines, censure, and in some cases people could be sent by the consistory to face the city council and be condemned to imprisonment. Members of the consistory were obliged by oath to denounce the facts that came into their knowledge so that they often held the role of denouncer and judge. Suppose I'm a member of a consistory, and I'm out on the street one, one day, and I hear my neighbor utter um, a curse word after stubbing his toe on a cobblestone. As a member of the council, I am obliged by oath to report this sin to the, count, to the consistory whereon I also sit as a judge in this affair. The investigator is the prosecutor, and in the cases of, count, of consistory members, is also the judge. Needless to say, a lot of people were unhappy with this inquisitorial regime. Calvin, however, held to it with absolute determination and maintained that complaints were arms of the devil. Now, I know what I would do if I ran into an arm of the devil. I hope you would do the same. Cut it off. <laughs> there was a woman, 1547, who was put in jail for having a ball on the occasion of her daughter's marriage. No dancing at weddings in Calvin's Geneva. There was a guy named Jacques Gruet who committed the crime of writing an unflattering pamphlet about Calvin. Well, I'm sorry, pamphlet's the wrong word, because he didn't publish it anywhere. It's really just a letter, an unflattering letter about Calvin. And Monsieur Gruet had the temerity to leave this letter in Calvin's chair <laughs> at the Church of St. Peter. Would you like to guess what the penalty was for this letter? Death. Death. The bloody-minded had it. He was put to death as a wicked man and a traitor after having long been tortured. Okay. Calvin strongly believed in torture. Many imprisonments were accompanied by torture. Then there was a doctor named Jerome Bolsek who maintained that Calvin's doctrine of predestination was contrary to the scriptures. For this crime, there was a trial and a long term of imprisonment. After that, he was banished. Now apparently, the only thing he did right was not insult Calvin personally. I don't know. But he got out of it with his life. One more incident of the theocratic regime in Geneva. Some of you may have heard of a chap named Michael Servetus. He was the founding father, if you want to call him that, of Unitarianism. He didn't believe in the Trinity. He didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He believed in some sort of morally interesting redemption, but not the kind we believe in. So he was a thorough-going, I mean, hyper-liberal Protestant. Well, he'd been traveling around and made a name for himself in various places. 
And in 1553, he made the mistake of coming into Geneva. There, he was hunted down, arrested, judged, and burned at the stake. So it wasn't only Bloody Mary in England who burned people at the stake. Gradually, during these years, there formed a party that called itself the Liberal Party because although they didn't have particular theological quarrels, they couldn't stand this repressive regime of personal inspection and enforced, uh, quote, orthodoxy, unquote. The founder of the Liberal Party was a chap named Philibert Bertelier. He was excommunicated by the consistory after two years. He was condemned and excommunicated for not having wanted to agree that he had done wrong in saying that he was just as good a man as Calvin. Wow. All right. So here's the leader of this liberal party. He has different political ideas. He doesn't want so much snooping around. And he says, I'm just as good a man as Calvin. For that, he was arrested and excommunicated, driven out of town. There were other theological trials conducted against people who disagreed with Calvin's doctrine. I, I've given you enough now to get the feel of Calvin's Geneva. He lived until 1564, died at the age of 55, so he died pretty young. By the end of his life, the last nine years of his life, he had managed to get complete control over the city. The city council was completely subservient. There was a larger council of 200 that was also completely conservative. The consistory always did what Calvin wanted, so it was a kind of one-man theocratic police state. And uh, before I end this segment of my talk, one of the main reasons that here in the United States there is so much fear of the religious right, so much fear when we try to influence public policy in a Christian direction. One of the important reasons for that is that in the popular mind, Calvin's Geneva is Christendom. Especially in the Protestant mind, they don't know about our Christendom. They know about Geneva. And Geneva was indeed a place where there could be police in the bedroom. Now in genuine Christendom, there was never any such thing. Look at the genuine Christendom of France, for example, in the reign of King St. Louis IX. There were no persecutions for not going. Nobody was ever arrested for not going to Mass. For that matter, nobody was ever arrested for using a harlot. I'm sorry to say, but the, the highways of France were full of little inns where no one could find overnight companionship. The king didn't like it, but he didn't think he could do much about it. Because power was limited. Even a medieval king had limited power. Louis XIV, who's the act of French royal power, and absolutely no will to persecute wrongdoing that really belongs in the confessional. Calvin had repealed the confession, and it was replaced by this system of spies. It's too bad that during the brief period of time that Calvin read Aquinas back in his early days, he didn't read the discussion on law. 
where Aquinas says that the government has no business making a law against any actions except those which most people can be expected to abstain from. So yeah, there can be laws against adultery, because most people can abstain from that. Laws against theft, laws against murder, because most people can abstain from that. But according to Aquinas, there cannot be a just law against gossip, even though we all know we shouldn't do it. And there should not be a just law against ordinary bad-mouthing, because most of us can't keep a civil tongue in their heads from time to time. So there should never have been on the books such laws as Calvin put into place, or at least such a system of enforcement. Never make the mistake of confusing Calvin's Geneva with the authentic Christian society of the Middle Ages. All right, now I know that you're all very interested in predestination and other main points of Calvinist theology. I'm sure, I hope you're familiar with the famous tulip, of course, very appropriate because Calvinism became very big in Holland. But each letter stands for a main point of Calvinist doctrine. T is for total depravity. Calvin took Luther's view and pushed it even further about how much damage the fall had done to man. Calvin maintained that you and I no longer have human nature. Human nature is what Adam was created with. And it was wonderful, it was good, and Adam even had free choice. We have a fallen nature. We are all subhuman. And as a result, we no longer have free choice. And the constant tendency of our minds, wills, and hearts is towards evil. So that, Without the grace of God, we cannot will any good whatsoever. Aquinas thought that people without grace could do some of the good that's appropriate to human nature. They could plant fields and earn their living, other good things like that. Augustine argued very carefully that without grace, man cannot do any salvific good. You can't do any good that contributes to your salvation. But it does mean you can't do any good that would contribute to your salvation. For that, you need the grace of God. Aquinas agreed with that position. The whole Catholic tradition agrees with that position. Moreover, in our doctrine, the results of the fall, there is a sickening or weakening of the will, but not a total destruction. You is for unconditional election. Calvin is saying, on the one hand, that when God elects some people to salvation, he does so independently of any foreseen merits on their part. It's not as though God foresees that you would be nice and therefore gives you grace. There's a, more than a suspicion of Pelagianism in that idea. So God's election of people to be saved is independent of any foreseen merits on their part. Aquinas agreed with that, I agree with that, Calvin agrees with that, no problem. The other part of unconditional election is that once God has chosen you, you can never be lost. You can't make a bad use of his grace, okay, as we'll get to more in a moment. All right, L. Is the converse also then true? What? That if God has not chosen you, you have no chance? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Look at that. <laughs> L is 
for limited atonement. Now, I imagine that you have always assumed that Christ died for the whole of mankind. That just as all mankind fell in Adam, so all mankind was redeemed on the cross by Christ. Not everybody has faith in that. Not everybody takes advantage of the redemption. But the redemption had a universal scope. Calvin thought otherwise. Calvin thought that Christ only died for the elect. He did not die for everybody. Calvin was hugely embarrassed by that verse in 2 Timothy where it says God wills all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Calvin thought that had to be wrong. <laughs> he tried the idea that maybe it means that just all kinds of people God wills all kinds of people to be saved. Butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, white people, black people, but not everybody in every category. The medieval church always maintained that the correct interpretation of that is what it says. God wills everybody to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If they don't do so, it's not God's fault. It's not because he didn't want them. But for Calvin, it is because he didn't want them. Let's go back to this. Unconditional election. I should have mentioned there's a third point involved in this on which there's a difference between Catholics and Calvinists. We maintain that there is indeed a positive act of predestination on God's part, but there is no positive act of reprobation on God's part. God freely chooses some to receive extraordinary graces if they need them. God freely chooses some to be saved. God is the master of his own grace. We have no right to complain about how God distributes his grace. We do know that since he wills all men to be saved, he who wills the end must will the means, and therefore God must grant every human being sufficient grace to be saved. But that sufficient grace may not avail in your case. You got enough grace to be saved, you didn't use it. You didn't take it, you didn't respond to it. No one is ever going to be in hell and say, how did I get here? <laughs> and be able to say, I'm here because, God, you didn't give me enough grace. You didn't give me enough help, you didn't give me enough grace. That kind of complaint can never be made against God. So there is a positive ordination, a positive will of act in God to choose some for salvation. But there is no positive act of reprobation. In Calvin, however, there is. The act of reprobating is just as positive as the act of electing. So there are distinct will acts in God, one of them whereby he chooses some people to love and glorify him by obedience, and positively chooses other people to be wicked and glorify him by suffering eternal punishment. So you've got a two-way will in God up here. Now, given that he positively wills a sector of mankind to be damned, it doesn't make any sense for him to teach that Christ died for everybody. Why would Christ die for those the Father has already condemned to hell from before they were born? So the atonement is limited. It's only for the elect. I is for irresistible grace. In the Catholic understanding, grace is resistible. 
God gives you good thoughts, good inspirations, good emotions of the will, and sometimes you're not interested, you're even hostile. In our understanding, grace is resistible. You are saved by grace. If you don't end up saved, it's because you resisted the grace. So it's not God's fault that you end up in hell, it's your fault. All clear? Simple? For Calvin, however, it can't be that way. Because grace is irresistible. And this connects nicely with the total depravity doctrine. Here we've got mankind deprived of free will. You are an automaton driven by bad will. Because you're an automaton driven by bad, by bad will, God hates you, of course. You're dead in trespasses and sins. You're under wrath. But out of the mass of people who have fallen into this state, God unconditionally chooses some. Their sins are atoned for by, by Jesus. And now we come to the question, how come we see around us people who seem to do good? And in fact, do do good. Like Calvin himself. <laughs> it can't be because they got free will back. Calvin maintains that we remain dead in our wills. We remain in this totally depraved state. In that state, we can't possibly do anything contributing to our salvation. So the only explanation for any good work that you see is irresistible grace. All right? Here is an automaton bent on doing nasty stuff. God muscles it over and compels it to do some good. So the grace is irresistible. Now remember, if you're one of the elect, your election is unconditional. And so you will get these irresistible graces in your life. If God has chosen you, you will do good. You will do good! <laughs> irresistible grace. And out of this combination of ideas comes the P, the final letter in the Calvinist Creed, Perseverance of the Saints. If your election is unconditional and grace is irresistible, you cannot possibly fall away. You cannot fall away. Once you become a Christian, you will stay one. Once you have responded to God's call, you will stay responsive. You positively will get to heaven. Now, many of you have run into uh, Baptist neighbors. They're all over this country. The Baptists uh, were originally a combination of Anabaptist ideas and Calvinist ideas. The modern Baptist denomination is not as old as the groups we've been talking about. It got from the Anabaptists the idea of only adult baptism, but it got from Calvinism most of this doctrine. And gradually, the T, the U, the L, and the I have vanished from Baptist preaching, and nothing remains except the perseverance of the saints. It remains in the form of the doctrine which they call eternal security. You may have run into this somewhere. Eternal security means once saved, always saved. 
Okay. Once you've given your heart to Jesus, you cannot be unsaved again. Just can't be done. Perseverance of the saints. Why can't it happen? Because, as it says in St. John's Gospel, my disciples are in my hand, no one takes them out of my hand. No one can take anybody out of the hand of Christ. I know my sheep, they know me, and no one takes them out of Yes, John 14, right? No one takes them out of my father's hand. Of course, it's a lot of twisting to say that that verse precludes something else. Okay, fine. The devil cannot secure victory over me so long as I am following Christ. If I pray, if I'm following Christ, if I'm making him first in my life, the devil is not stronger than Jesus. Right. So the devil can't take me out of his hand. However, I, alas, can take myself out of his hand. I can leave his hand. The verse in John 14 does not preclude that. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> the passage in 2 Peter positively requires it. Oh, I used to love this when I was debating Calvinist friends in high school. This is 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's talking about bad teachers who have arisen in the church by the time of this epistle. They speak great swelling words of vanity. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. Now the crucial part. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. They have known the way of righteousness. Can that have happened to them without God's grace? Surely not. Then, however, something nasty happens. They become entangled again in the world. And the apostle says that the latter end is worse than the first. How can it be worse than the first? Before they became Christians, they were on the road to perdition anyway, weren't they? Okay. But now, you see, they're on the road to perdition with less excuse. They were out of it. They had tasted salvation. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is baloney. It's refuted by 2 Peter chapter 2, in my opinion. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, we'll get it for you. Well, verse 1 goes against limited atonement. It says they deny the, the, the word that brought them. Yeah. They were redeemed. Yeah. Oh, every one of these points can be argued against from Scripture. No problem. Let me go back now and say some more about this whole business of reprobation and election. Suppose God pulls me up by my armpits to make me stand. If my legs stay jelly, does he succeed in making me stand? No. 
My muscles and sinews must become such that in real terms I'm standing on them. The same is true when we take the talk of standing more broadly to refer to our being alive and justified before God spiritually. God lifts me up by his grace to make me alive and upright. If my inner faculties remain as dead as doornails, does God succeed in making me alive? If my faculties remain utterly prostrate in sin, does God succeed in making me stand? No. My mind and will must become such that in real terms I am living for God in them. This point Calvinism recognizes, sort of, because Calvin doesn't really. Now there is a serious difference between Calvin's understanding of the real work that God does in us and the understanding that we find in the doctors of the church such as Augustine and Aquinas. Augustine and Aquinas had held that we have no power in our nature to stand before God in a saved condition. No power in our nature to do that. If we do stand, it is only by the working of his grace. Let me quote from you from a document prepared at Rome in the year 430 AD. It was a summary of previous teachings of the popes on, on the grace matter. And it's got ten short chapters, in the first of which we read, quote, In Adam's sin, all men lost natural capacity and innocence. And no one, by his own free will, can rise from the depth of that ruin unless the grace of our merciful God lifts him up. There you are, the natural will of fallen man, unaided by grace, cannot get us out of the fallen condition. But the doctors of the church also held that God's grace in bringing our faculties back to life restores freedom to our will in those crucial moral and spiritual areas where we had lost it through slavery to sin. Now this is interesting. All the fathers of the church acknowledge that man has free will, both before receiving grace and after receiving grace. The difference is that without grace, we are unattracted by certain possibilities. Okay. You can only will what you perceive to be good, useful, profitable, something like that. You can't will what you yourself perceive to be lousy. And without the grace of God, you cannot perceive obedience to God as much of a good. So the natural man resists it. It's not that we're automata. It's just that we've become like tone-deaf person in relation to music. Okay? A tone-deaf person cannot choose to listen to music. So it was with our free will in our fallen state towards God. It's not that we were automata, but that we couldn't find him attractive. The fathers of the church hold that God's grace in bringing our faculties back to life restores freedom in those crucial moral and spiritual areas where we had lost it through slavery to sin. Just as a person cured of tone deafness can now appreciate music and choose to listen to it, so also we can respond favorably to God. 
With freedom restored in these areas, we can cooperate freely with God's graces. Now there is the crucial word, cooperate. Let me read you another quotation from the year 430 from the Indicolus. This is chapter 9. Talking about grace. By this God, free will is not removed, but liberated. So that from being in darkness, the will comes into the light. From being prostrate, the will becomes upright. From being sickly, it becomes well. From being heedless, it becomes prudent. One more quotation, same chapter. God so operates in us that we may will and accomplish what he wills. And he does not permit his gifts to lie idle in us. He has given them for us to exercise, not neglect, so that we may be cooperators with his grace. Now there it is. There's the word that Calvin hated above all other words. Cooperation. We can only work with the grace of God. If that grace has brought us back to life, then we can cooperate. Calvin maintained that we cannot cooperate with that we're, with grace. We're left dead. The grace is an irresistible muscling us over. Our wills remain dead in trespasses and sins. Now, what do you call a person who in his inner faculties is dead, but who shows signs, overt signs of life? Reach into Haitian yeah. mythology. A zombie. There it is. Okay. Calvinist man is a zombie under the grace of God. We hold otherwise. Under the grace of God, man is truly alive. And so, God's initial graces make us free. His further graces leave us free. If we fail to cooperate with those graces and fall into sin, it was our own free choice to do so, and we have no one to blame but ourselves. Clear? Calvin denied that there's any free cooperation between divine grace and a human will, because he denied that freedom is restored to the will. For him, sanctification is a work of irresistible grace. So the man who is sinning has no choice but to sin. The sinner is a bit like a guy who has chosen to jump off a bridge. He chose to fall, but he now has no choice but to fall. For Calvin, every sinner is in that position. He has no choice but to sin. He who is not sinning has no choice but not to. So ultimately, it's God's will alone that makes the difference between the man who is sinning and the man who isn't. Now this brings up the problem of what God causes to occur by his will. And ultimately, it is a problem of what God creates. Let me go back a minute and uh, use again the word stand in this broad spiritual sense. And I want to put on board a proposition. We'll call it Proposition A. And it says, God succeeds in making me stand if and only if I stand. If and only if I stand. Now, this means to say that the two clauses there are equivalent, 
and that means that each clause implies the other. If God makes me stand, I stand. Transpose that. If I do not stand, God does not make me stand. Correct. Plus, if I stand, God makes me stand. And now transpose that. If God does not make me stand, I do not stand. Now there are four propositions, all taught by St. Augustine, all accepted by the Council of Orange against the Pelagians. Catholics, Calvinists, and many other denominations all agree with the four propositions I've just given you. We have no power in our nature to stand before God in a saved condition. If we stand, it's only by the working of his grace. Okay, then where does Calvin bring in something different? We'll call it Proposition B, because it's underivable from Proposition A. It's logically independent of Proposition A. Calvin's distinctive claim is, if I do not stand, God makes me not stand. Now, why is Proposition B underivable from any of the four implications contained in Proposition A? The reason is because the ideas of abstention, not making something happen, and suppression, making X not happen, are very different and very distinct. That's very easy to see in the case of created agents. Guess what? I do not make it rain. It hardly follows that I make it not rain. What do you think I am, the prophet Elijah? <laughs> now God's case is a little harder to see because God's causality is what everything depends upon. But the distinction still holds up. God has not given me a third son. So God didn't give me a son. It hardly follows that he made me not have one. More deeply, the distinction between A here and B here stands because God does not create <coughs> negative states of affairs. God is perfect being, and everything he makes is. He doesn't make non-beings. He doesn't create states of affairs which consist wholly and precisely in something's not being there, or something's not being in order or something's not being right. Now, it often happens that positive states of affairs preclude each other. My being white all over right now precludes my being brown all over right now. So it might seem, therefore, that if God makes me white, he also makes me not brown, and thus brings about a negative state of affairs. But not so. There is no such divine action. God doesn't have to do anything to make me non-brown other than what he does to make me white. He's the author of my whiteness, and my non-brownness is a mere logical consequence that requires no further divine authorship. And we can confirm that from another angle. Being white, or for that matter, being brown, is a positive state of affairs in its own right. The fact that a white thing is not brown is incidental to its being white. It's not constitutive. No proper definition of the color white would include the cause that it's not being brown. This is where the difference comes between being white, which is my misfortune, and being wicked, 
you can decide whether that's my misfortune too. But anyway, the, the difference is, is, is here. White is a positive quality, like brown or yellow, but being wicked is not a positive quality. By proper definition, being wicked is not being in order, not being in conformity to eternal norm, not being in line with divine precept. All moral evil involves negativity, essentially. And as a result, the state of affairs that anyone is morally evil is a negative state of affairs consisting wholly and precisely in his or her not being a certain one. But God does not create negative states of affairs. Therefore, he does not make anyone wicked. He does not make anyone not stand. This is why... Christian tradition has always been able to say against God's detractors that God does not cause our sins. He does not create any state of affairs which is our not being in order. We alone are the choosers and makers of disorder. It was for these reasons exactly that Augustine and Aquinas did not concede Proposition B up there, which is the distinctive premise of Calvin's system. Now, Bible fans, you may say to me, what about Romans 9.18? God has mercy on whom he pleases and he hardens whom he pleases. Couldn't it be that Calvin's distinctive premise B there is revealed? It doesn't have to be derived by logic from other truths like Proposition A, it can just directly reveal. How about that? Well, the trouble with that argument is Romans 9, 18 does not stand in isolation. Elsewhere, the scriptures speak of this hardening in another way. In Hebrews 3, 8 and 3, 15, Hebrews speaks of people hardening their own hearts and warning them not to do it. I want you to compare Mark 6.52 with Mark 8.17. And you will see that the hardening of the heart is the disciples' own doing. When all the scriptures are on hardening are looked at together, they can be read consistently. Not as God making people not believe, but as God abandoning them in their unbelief. Uh, Hebrews... 3, 8, and 15. Yeah. And in Mark? Mark 6.52 and Mark 8.17. All right. Now, I'm almost out of time, so I don't want to uh, spend time talking to you about the passage on which Calvin chiefly relied. It's a long discussion, and uh, you can ask me about it later, but I can't get into it now. The passage is Romans 8, verses 29 to 30. Because whom he foreknew, he also predestined as conformed to the image of the Son, that the Son might be the firstborn of many brethren. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Calvin reads that verse, Romans 8, 29 to 30 in such a way that the word all is to be understood. All the foreknown are predestined. All the predestined are called. All the called are justified. All the justified are glorified. 
So anybody who doesn't end up in heaven was never justified in the first place. And was never really called in the first place. And was never predestined. Does everybody see? That's how Calvin gets a distinctive part of his system. Oh, it's a great verse. And I know how to interpret it properly. And I'm not going to tell you. I have to move on to the problem of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There. God will not allow you to be tempted above your strength, but will make, along with the temptation, a way of escape so that you can endure it. There it is. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's one of those great and precious promises to which God is certainly faithful. But is this promise for everyone who reads the Bible with a touch of credence, including people who aren't doing it? Or is this promise only for the elect? Now, those are the only two possibilities. Now, suppose this promise is for all of us. No sincere reader of the Bible, then, is deceived. All of us can count on this promise, even those who will, in the future, fall away and end up as reprobates. In that case, the reprobates will have no one but themselves to blame for their yielding to temptations and falling away. Literally, no one will be able to say, quote, God, you didn't give me any way out. Unquote. More to the point, God himself can say of every person in every case of temptation, I have given you a way out. And thus it's not true of any person that God unilaterally hardened his or her heart. That interpretation is contrary to Calvin. So let's go to the other interpretation. Suppose the promise is only for the elect. In that case, we have two sub-possibilities. Either the elect never sin by yielding to temptation, or else they sometimes do. Now, let's suppose that the elect never sin by yielding to temptation. Because this is, this is a safe promise. God gave them a way out. His grace is irresistible then even one example of a time of weakness in your Christian life when you did not succeed in escaping the temptation is proof positive that you are not one of the elect. <laughs> even one fall is proof that you have nothing to hope for from God. You are a reprobate. Any attempt at repentance will be useless motion. Your first post-conversion sin will be a God-given license to despair. But of course, the beloved disciple who leaned on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper teaches us just the opposite. What does he say? If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, John again says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. So the sub-possibility that says the elect never yield the temptation is impossible. It's against the scriptures. Well now, suppose the elect then sometimes do sin by yielding to temptation. All right. 
But in every such case, by 1 Corinthians 10.13, they had a way of escape. That means that they had the grace to overcome it. So in yielding, they resisted the grace rather than the temptation. Therefore, against Calvin, some grace at least is resistible, at least by the elect. To avoid this conclusion, a Calvinist will have no possibility except to argue that the grace was only to escape for a time. It was an irresistible grace to be temporarily resistant to the temptation, to which God all along had intended in the secret counsel of his will that he would succumb. But then St. Paul is a liar when he says that the grace given in every case is a grace to escape the temptation. Does everybody see? If Calvin is right, the grace cannot be a grace to escape. It cannot even be called a grace to escape committing the sin itself. It can only be called a grace not to commit the sin prematurely. God's promised help turns out to be a grace to sin in God's good time and not a moment sooner. So, 1 Corinthians 10.13 turns out to be pretty deceptive if Calvin is right. It only means to promise that the elect will sin exactly when God wants them to. <laughs> so if grace is indeed irresistible, this possibility, I submit, is unacceptable. It turns the promise of God into a deceit. Those are the only two sub-possibilities. Calvin just has no way out of this. And I sincerely believe I hope, and I also believe, that when you receive God's grace, it is the grace to escape a temptation, not merely one to sin when God wants you to. <laughs> In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>
with this verse if it only started with, for those whom he did predestine, then he also called, right? And then he justified and then he glorified, all right? Calvin puts the word all in front of any, in front of every one of those clauses so as to end up with one set of people who are foreknown, predestined, justified, called, glorified, the whole nine yards. That's the set of the elect. The trouble with that is St. Paul puts foreknew first. Now, doesn't God foreknow everybody, including those who are not among the elect? Of course he does. So it cannot be the case that everyone whom God foreknew, then he also did predestinate. Unless universalism is true. Now, why have so many old Calvinist churches in New England by the 1820s or 30s become universalists? Now you see. Then he predestines everybody. We're all we're all going to have, We're all saved. Yes. I'm leading a dialogue with several uh, Baptist friends, and uh, if I could uh, uh, focus on one or two theological topics to anchor the discussion, what would you recommend? Well, you can certainly pick on the eternal security business. Okay. They really feel that if they didn't believe that, they'd be a nervous wreck. I have to know that I'm saved or I can't get through my day without being a nervous wreck. Um, it's a little bit harder to argue sola scriptura, but that's a key thing for them. And uh, what you want to argue, what you want to do there is argue from silence. Nowhere does the Bible say that it is the sole norm for the deciding of all religious questions. In fact, Paul, at the end of, well, which epistle is it? Somebody here knows. The end of one of his epistles says, make sure you keep all the traditions that you got from me by word of mouth or by writing. Okay. So we know that there were points in which St. Paul's churches were being instructed that did not make it into his written letters that we have in the canon. Scripture nowhere says that it's sufficient, formally sufficient, to decide all questions. So if you believe it is, you are committing what is alleged to be the Catholic sin. You're adding something to the scriptures. Your own belief in this case about the all-sufficiency of Scripture. Just as Catholics are supposed to have added all that stuff about the Eucharist and all that stuff about Mary and all that, thou addest also. <laughs> oh, and, and, and in connection with that same with that same issue, how how did the canon of Scripture get to be recognized in the first place? Was the church just handed it from the Jews? Well, originally, sure. We got our Old Testament canon from the Jews. And in the first century AD, especially in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, that canon was the Alexandrian canon, which means that it had in it the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Sirach, and the 
two books of the Maccabees, and so on. Um, that we were handed. But no book of the New Testament came in a, in, a, in a parchment that had, hello, I am a canonical book on the cover. Okay. There had to be a work of discernment. Which were the acceptable Gospels and which were not. Now, it won't seem difficult if you don't know about any of the pseudepigraphical Gospels. Pseudepigraphical. That is such a good word. <laughs> but there's a pseudep... There's a false Gospel of Peter. Uh, uh, James, Thomas. Yeah. Gnostic Gospels and so on. Gnostic inspiration anyway. So there were a lot of other Gospels in competition with the four we have. Likewise, um, there were lots of false epistles. And it wasn't until the 4th or even part of the 5th century, for some, in some places, for the canon to fully settled. Now then, it was settled by church authority. Councils were held, books were discussed, lists made up. Eventually a list was accepted in Rome. So it had an element of church authority in it. Uh, Baptists are going to have to completely ignore that history. They're going to have to say, no, the church had nothing to do with giving us the canon. The canon, rather, is what gives us the church. So they're going to have to have a canon that's independently recognizable. And where does that come from? Well, Calvin, at one point, uh, maintained that the canonical books just sort of glow with the Holy Spirit. You can't read them and not appreciate their canonicity, whereas the other books don't glow. Calvin then has no explanation for how come for 1,500 years so many Christians, saints, doctors, bishops, whatever, failed to notice the lack of glow on 1st Maccabees. How could Luther have been unsure about the glow of the Epistle of James? It's, it's a nasty problem for them. Yes? If the fate of all human beings is predetermined by God, some to be saved and some to be condemned to the hell, what is the need for the final judgment? Why should the Son of Man come down with all his glory and majesty to judge the human beings? Calvin would say that simply because it pleased God to do it this way. Okay. Calvin has a very famous line in which he says, there is no understanding the divine will. Okay. There's no intelligibility behind the divine will. Okay. The only explanation of God's will is God's own good pleasure. He wills it because he wills it. And who are you to question him? Okay. So you can't appeal to anything that would be an intelligent reason within God's wisdom as to why he would do this. When you read Calvin in certain places, like Book 2 of the Institutes, it seems as though Adam, before the fall, did have free will. Okay. He used it for bad, precipitating mankind into this condition. So it's not our fault, I'm sorry, it's not God's fault that we come into the world depraved. Okay? 
It's Adam's doing. He had free will, he loused up, he wrecked that covenant, and now we come into the world in original sin, which Calvin thinks of as still depravity. But that's not God's fault. Then you turn over to read book three of the Institutes. And it turns out the only reason Adam fell is because God wanted him to. Absolutely. This is called the superlapsarian version of Calvinism. Superlapsarian means that even before the fall, God totally controlled every human movement. It's hard to see how he must how he could have even thought that free choice was possible. But before the fall, God had already decided that the whole of mankind would be included in this mass of the damned. Massa damnata. Okay, the muck of the damned. All right? One more thing about my conversion, huh? Yes. No, uh, yeah, just yes. You yes. last week you had said yes. the swingly, the, you know, kind of what the swingliisms are in the modern church. Is there Cal, Cal, traces of Calvin in the modern? Oh, no. Kind of, no. Or is that just no, 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 so no. totally <coughs> There is no road from Calvinism to modernism as there was in Zwingli. There's no road except the road which consists of rejecting Calvinism. And if you think Calvinism is the meaning of the Bible, then you would, when you reject that crazy system, you pitch Christianity over the This is what happened to the Unitarians and the Universalists in New England. Bye, everybody. <laughs>